investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, investors, to episode 18 of the Absolute Return Podcast. Today is Monday, June 17th. We're a few days late in recording the podcast. That was because uh, my co-host Mike here wrote the CFA Level 3 exam over the weekend, the Chartered Financial Analyst exam. Did mine a number of years ago, so I'm sure it feels great for him to get that uh, off his plate for now. But this week, we have a number of interesting topics to discuss Off the top, there's uh, Germany selling 10-year bonds yielding negative 0.24%. Going to talk about, is the bond market really the dumb money here? Online pet supply retailer Chewy, that soared nearly 90% in its IPO last week. Does its valuation make sense here? China's industrial output growth slows to 17-year low. Is China losing the trade war? Lastly, investors seek to take retailer Hudson's Bay Co. private. Our shareholders getting a fair price at this level. Some interesting action in the bond markets this week. And one thing that we've really touched upon a number of times over the last few months of the podcast, and it's really been happening over the last number of years, is the concept of negative yielding bonds globally, which I believe Deutsche Bank came out with a figure last week saying there's $12 trillion globally of sovereign debt yielding negative rates of return. And this is one of the first times that government has capitalized on this and actually got paid to issue debt. What happened here was Germany sold 10-year bonds or boons, as some people like to call them, yielding negative 0.24%. That is the lowest yield on record that they've ever sold the debt at. What's interesting is that, interesting and shocking, is that investors buying this are guaranteed a negative rate of return. It's a guaranteed loss if you hold these till maturity. So you have an investment with a guaranteed loss, yet uh, this 22 billion euro issue generated uh, investor demand of more than the 60% of the 22 billion offered, which is pretty shocking in my opinion. This yield was well below the minus 0.07% the previous 10-year auction yielded in late May. Germany, the government, is getting even better prices here. They're getting paid even more by investors to take their money. A previous trough of minus 0.11%, this was recorded in 2016. Like we said, negative yields have been happening for a number of years, but it just seems to be getting more and more negative. Highly rated bonds have rallied in recent weeks as concern over the global economy, particularly this U.S.-China trade war, which we've been discussing pretty much every single week on the podcast. This has sparked expectations that major central banks will assume a more dovish posture and pursue rate cuts. And so by dovishness, we just tend to mean uh, rate cuts globally, not just that, but additional potentially uh, quantitative easing measures or just halting any sort of quantitative tightening that they have been engaged with. We recently discussed how in the U.S., 
They recently stopped their uh, bond roll-off off the balance sheet. You see the ECB, the European Central Bank, becoming increasingly uh, dovishness. Just last week, the ECB promised to hold rates at historic lows until at least mid-2020. This is pushing out their guidance. They previously indicated they'd hold rates at record lows until late 2019. Uh, the guy running the ECB, Mario Draghi, he indicated he was prepared to use, quote, all instruments that are in the toolbox. That just kind of indicates his level of dovishness. That reminds me of back uh, a number of years ago when the Eurozone was really in crisis. You had Grexit to worry about, a number of uh, sovereign bond yields going really, really high. I remember Italy yielded north of 7%. Greece was about to default. He indicated he would do whatever it took keep the euro together. And that uh, that central bank action seems to have calmed that market panic a number of years ago. So never underestimate the power of central bankers. How this relates to U.S. rate cuts with uh, yields declining globally, the implied odds of at least one quarter point reduction to the Fed's benchmark rate now sits at a stunning 98%. The market believes it's a near certainty that the Fed will cut rates this year with two or three quarter point cuts being the most likely scenarios. So in the bond market, you have $12 trillion globally of sovereign bonds with negative yields. That means investors buying these are guaranteed to lose money. In my opinion, that's just a dumb trade right there. So I am branding the bond market as real dumb money. It's no longer retail investors. It is the bond market. What are your thoughts on this craziness going on in uh, German fixed income? Yeah, so the first question that comes up is who's buying these bonds? And really, there's kind of two separate groups. So you have institutions that have to own government bonds for liquidity requirements or to pledge as collateral when borrowing in money markets. So they're, they're effectively forced buyers. Exactly. Here. As well as within that, I would probably group the overall like bond e- government bond ETFs as once again, they're forced buyers. These bonds are, go- are going to be a part of government bond indices. So if you're a passive ETF, you have to hold these. There's no real credit decision there. But counter to that, you do have investors, I guess, active investors yes. allocating to that ETF. So those guys must be the dumb. <laughs> yes. What you should see in an ideal scenario is that there's outflows from those ETFs. But sure. I, don't, I don't have any data to support that. Um, and then the second group would just be speculators that believe that they can profit from the price appreciation on these uh, on these bonds. And so what they would be, their rationale would be, Yes, these are negative yielding right now, but that they're going to yield even more negatively in the future. Right. That's just a speculative trade where you're buying an overvalued asset, betting on the greater fool theory that someone else is going to come along and pay an even higher or more overvalued price for that asset. It's just a straight speculation, not an investment. Absolutely. And so, yeah, the other thing that I just wanted to point out that just generally that this kind of puts you know, finance and valuation on its head when you're typically using discount rates to value assets. Having a negative discount rate really throws a uh, a wrench into that machine of valuation. Certainly. And there's a number, uh, a couple of things I wanted to touch on that you discussed. The first one being who's buying these, and, and you mentioned those two parties, but the third one, and I think A major reason why we have so much debt globally, sovereign debt trading at negative yields, is just the central banks. 
Uh, the ECB is buying up pretty much as many bonds as they can in uh, their quantitative easing measures. They're trying to get interest rates low to spread the economy. The Euro Eurozone really hasn't been growing at all since pretty much 2009. You've had a number of countries there go through multiple recessions, whether it be Greece or Italy, uh, some of the major economies in the Eurozone. Then moving on to Japan, I mean, the Bank of Japan has had, you could call it uh, MMT or Modern Monetary Theory, which is pretty extreme monetization in which the uh, the central banks are buying all the government debt and the government debt the government is uh, effectively uh, funding massive deficits just by issuing more and more bonds in which their own central bank goes ahead and purchases i think that's one of the main reasons why we have such uh, such an incredible amount as i said 12 trillion of negative yielding debt worldwide and that's negative on a nominal basis so if you take inflation into account assume inflation is two percent then you're going to be losing uh, north of two percent of your purchasing power each year so in my opinion a pretty dumb trade and investment another thing you talked about was the negative discount rates in terms of valuation and i really think we've seen that manifest in markets over the past 10 years, where you've had tremendous outperformance on growth stocks, highly speculative story stocks, or as I call them, glamour stocks that are perhaps burning a ton of money uh, just to show revenue growth, whether it be uh, Netflix or some of these story stocks IPOing these year, th these days at tremendous valuations, Uber, Lyft, all burning a ton of dough. Investors typically invest for profit but these companies are burning a lot of cash just to get revenue growth current year to perhaps earn a profit sometime in the far distant future. And the thing with zero or negative interest rates is it really, you don't discount those future positive cash flows that are way, way in the future. Meanwhile, if uh, interest rates normalize, say to four to 6%, then those future profits of these speculative entities, the discounted value of those would come down pretty remarkably and I believe a rise in interest rates would really, uh, you know, hurt the the present value of these, you know, glamour stocks and these, uh, you know, more so tech-related companies, growth entities. So I think that's a big deal. Having negative interest rates, it's really thrown investors for a loop, where you've had a massive underperformance of value stocks and a tremendous outperformance of these growth or glamour stocks. And I think, in my opinion is that this has largely been caused by these zero or negative discount rates, negative interest rates worldwide. Absolutely. And you look at like the U.S., you have very, well, the equity markets have been on an absolute tear. In Europe, not as, it, they haven't been as much so. And so when you're looking at the favorability between bonds and, you know, just losing, you know, 25, 26 basis points, on these bonds versus equity markets that have been a lot more volatile than that. Perhaps it is just that decision to lose a little as opposed to having the risk of vol more volatility. Right. And as an individual investor, you probably don't think about it because you can put your money in a checking account, savings account, earn a little bit of interest. But when you have $10 billion, it's not so simple just to uh, open up a checking or savings account at, at your local bank. Unfortunately, a lot of these 
uh, fixed income buyers are forced buyers here. Obviously, see pensions and endowments moving up the risk scale, allocating to more uh, alternative investments, moving out of fixed income, especially on the sovereign bond side, moving more so into hedge funds, private equity, real estate, things of that nature, in order to seek higher yielding returns. We had a big IPO last week with online pet supply retailer Chewy, soaring nearly 90% in its IPO. Some price action. It rallied as high as 41 bucks per share in a stock market debut after selling the shares in the IPO at 22 bucks per share and raising 1 billion of equity capital. This was increased from the initial IPO range of 19 to 21 bucks share. Chewy, using the ticker CHWY, was valued at $14 billion once the shares started trading. Some shareholder dynamics, PetSmart, private company, I believe it's private equity owned, it remains the majority owner of Chewy with a 70% stake in the company and a 77% controlling interest. So we have the dynamics here of a fairly low float IPO, which tends to be somewhat manipulative, where they offer only you know, a limited amount of shares. They know that demand is going to overwhelm supply and they seek to get that very high valuation and that typical IPO pop. Some background, PetSmart acquired Chewy.com for $3.35 billion in 2017. And at that time, Chewy had $900 million in revenue and $107 million operating loss. So they're losing a lot of money here. Two years later, currently, the market is valuing Chewy at $14 billion. It's nearly a fourfold increase in valuation. Now that has $2.1 billion in revenue. Sales went up threefold and a $338 million operating loss. So they managed to lose almost 4x the amount of money and got a pretty massive valuation bump, I believe 5x valuation bump, just on a massive increase in losses, uh, but also growth in revenue. As we recently discussed, the market really seems to be rewarding companies growing their top line at any cost, even if it comes with massively spiraling losses greater and greater every year. The market seems to be looking past that and perhaps that's correlated to the negative interest rates. And this really goes with the trend that we've seen in IPOs. We've been commenting on a lot of different IPOs, whether it be Beyond Meat, video conferencing company Zoom, software company uh, PagerDuty. They've all surged since going public. Pretty tremendous IPO pops on that one, even though the broader market has kind of been a bit choppy. And you've had uh, a couple high-profile struggles, such as Uber and Lyft. Nonetheless, in my opinion, the IPO window here is wide open, especially if you're a high-growth company that's effectively selling dollars for 95 cents. With that business model, you can certainly take market share. You can show tremendous revenue growth. But will they ever show profits that ultimately lead to a sustainable business and a good share price performance over the long term? Be remiss if I didn't comment back on Pets.com, which was pretty much the exact same business model as Chewy, although it happened 20 years ago when the tech boom was really going wild in the late 90s up to the year 2000. Pets.com, they had their infamous sock puppet and the Super Bowl commercial. They went public wild IPO pop and went bankrupt uh, less than a year later just because investors really soured on funding these loss-making internet companies. So it'll be interesting to see. Just keep that in mind if you do plan on trading Chewy stock. Uh, word of caution there. 
we have a good precedent for a company with exact same business model that uh, was heavily hyped, but ultimately went bankrupt quite quickly in the midst of spiraling losses. What are your thoughts on just these crazy IPOs we've been seeing lately? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you mentioned some of the IPOs that have done well, but we did see last month the Uber IPO, which was somewhat of a disaster. And so you know, looking back after that, you know, some of the investors in IPOs, they were kind of concerned about how this next one was going to go. You are seeing a lot of strength with Beyond Meat and uh, and now with Chewy. But really looking at Chewy specifically, they're capitalizing on a recent trend of increasing average spend per pet among U.S. households, which has been trending upwards of over the last 10 years. So that's an interesting thing that they're they're really kind of dialing into. But the other aspect when looking at them as opposed to a company like Zoom that has a lot higher gross margins is that Chewy really only has, I believe it's 22% gross margins. So they're just there are just a lot less benefits to scaling. So the traditional mindset with these companies that are growing revenue at a massive rate but have large losses is that eventually they'll hit the critical scale where they will be able to realize all these benefits of operating leverage where they have a high fixed cost base, but they're able to dwindle that down on a per unit basis. You're not, this isn't a business model that's as structurally suited towards that. So, I mean, like in in terms of the valuation, it is quite crazy. Uh, The other interesting aspect is that their revenue growth is actually been slowing. So last year they did grow at about 68%, but in their most recent quarter, that growth had slowed to about 40%. So still substantial growth rates, but those growth rates are coming down a bit. It's interesting you brought up the topic of operating leverage. And it's really important when evaluating these business models to determine what sort of operating leverage the businesses have. You mentioned Zoom, which as it scales, you see a nice growth in operating profits. But a company like Chewy, who seems to have negative operating leverage, that means as they grow more and more, uh, the more they sell, the more money they lose. At some point, they hope to turn that around, but uh, a lot of the times that that doesn't happen. They just kind of get overwhelmed. And the other thing with companies with negative operating leverage is they're highly sensitive to market conditions because they, they rely on capital markets to fund these increasing and seemingly infinite never-ending losses. And if the market, the window for equity or debt financings for these companies with negative operating leverage and rising losses, if that window ever closes, then it's effectively lights out for the business and you know these things can go bankrupt which did happen to effectively, a, you could call it a predecessor type company, Pets.com, in uh, the tech boom of the late 90s, early 2000s. Absolutely. And in terms of the capital markets window, is you typically do see a strong demand for IPOs, but secondary offerings of shares are a different beast. So that is a kind of a word of caution for some of these IPO investors when the company does look to tap markets uh, in the future. For sure. So focus on sustainability of the business and keep in mind that uh, things are getting pretty crazy in IPO land and this could be a tech bubble 2.0 or IPO bubble 2.0. So something to keep an eye out. 
Touching on the U.S.-China trade war here, interesting numbers out of China. We've been discussing it for the past number of months, just increasingly negative data points coming out of China's economy. We had another one last week in which industrial output growth, it slowed to a 17-year low, came in at 5.0% compared to analyst expectations of 5.5%, so pretty substantial miss on the industrial output growth in China. Another interesting aspect is that after this data was released, China's central bank announced another 300 billion yuan of stimulus to smaller domestic banks. Certainly, Chinese central bank is really getting heavily involved in the economy with pretty significant stimulus. But at the end of the day, this is just another negative economic data point warning and a warning signal and a clear sign that China is ultimately losing the trade war with the U.S. It's not only in their stock market showing this, which has had a relatively rough ride versus the U.S. markets, which are within 2% of all-time highs. You're really seeing it come through the economic data numbers, which are coming in worse and worse seemingly each month. And we believe that trend is going to continue. Quote here from uh, Capital Economics, a research firm, they indicated the weakness in May's and April's activity data suggests that economic growth is likely to slow this quarter and increases the likelihood of additional monetary easing in the coming months. My thoughts are that instead of China reforming its economic policies to settle trade tensions as it should, it continues to turn to fiscal stimulus, which is continuing to lose effectiveness. Not Not just that, but... I mean, it seems like they're just pushing on a string here with respect to stimulus. It gets less and less effective each time. Uh, What are your thoughts on what's happening in China with respect to the growth numbers and the stimulus that they seemingly have an unlimited amount of? Yeah, with the stimulus package that they announced, as well as they're likely to further cut um, the bank's reserve requirements to encourage additional... uh, additional credit support is that this was something that we brought up about a month ago on the podcast as a possibility. And especially with regards to the reserve requirements is they've actually cut these six times since the beginning of 2018. So it was not a, uh, a novel prediction of, of any sorts, but you know, it, it's just going to show how much they are, as you mentioned, trying to push on a string and it's just becoming less and less effective. And the interesting metric that I that I noticed was that power generation grew just 0.2% over the past month, which is traditionally being used as a proxy for growth in China. So yeah. It's a little more accurate. And that was the slowest rate since 2016. In terms of other economic drivers, you're seeing a, seeing a slowing in real estate, construction starts. And these are all areas, in addition to infrastructure, that the Chinese government has used to indirectly provide stimulus, especially with infrastructure spending. Right. And stimulus is no panacea. Certainly it helps combat some economic weakness temporarily, but ultimately China clearly needs structural changes, large structural changes, and not just that, but effectively legal changes in their legal system to 
effectively, you know, change their economy such that it's more sustainable, not just for their own sake, but on a trade sake, they need to tighten up relationships with the US and, and other large trading partners just to be more balanced because it's really starting to bite them here. We're seeing it not just in the stock market, but it's really coming out in their economic data figures and they can really only hold up for so long until they realize that something needs to be done or else they're uh, going to start talking about the R-word, recession, which they haven't seen in a while. But I think ultimately at some point, all these stimulus measures really will cease effectiveness in combating this pervasive economic weakness. Moving on to some M&A. Investors seek to take retailer Hudson's Bayco private. Are shareholders getting a fair price here? Well, what happened was a group of investors, including... HBC, Hudson's Bay Executive Chairman Richard Baker, along with co-working company WeWork and private equity firm Roan Capital, they offered to take uh, HBC Private, effectively buy out the minority shareholders at $9.45 cash per share. And this represented a takeover premium of 48%, which is a fairly sizable takeover premium. But I mean, HBC was down in the $6 and change range being basically an all-time low. This investor group already owns about 57% of the company, so they're looking to acquire the remaining 43% of the equity. Some background on HBC, along with its namesake Canadian chain, Hudson's Bay. They also own Saks Fifth Ave and Lord & Taylor. Some stock price performance, it was down nearly 50% over the past year prior to this $1.74 billion takeover offer being made. But prior to unveiling this Go private offer, the stock had lost almost two-thirds of its value since its IPO in 2012. Certainly extremely poor share price performance, negative uh, business performance since it went public seven years ago. A quote here from the executive chairman, Richard Baker, he stated, quote, We believe that improving HBC's performance will require significant time and patient long-term capital that is better suited in a private company context without the emphasis on short-term results and returns. While we continue to believe in HBC's long-term potential, it has become clear that the significant challenges, risks, and uncertainties facing HBC in the rapidly evolving retail environment are best addressed in a private market setting. That's the quote from HBC's uh, executive chairman and largest shareholder, Richard Baker. This transaction would be subject to approval of the majority of the remaining shareholders, so they got to vote it through to get it done. The deal's timing was sparked by investors' frustration that the public markets haven't recognized the steps that Hudson's Bay has taken over the past year and a half to improve shareholder value. They did a number of things, such as selling of Gilt, which they really just acquired. It was one of these online flash sales companies, which was pretty much a disaster. They shut down Home Outfitters, Home Decor Chain as well. And they've been selling uh, a number of real estate assets. What I find really problematic with this bid, obviously the share price has been extremely poor. I believe they IPO'd at 17 bucks per share in 2012, so seven years ago and the stock was recently at six bucks. And now they're trying to take it out for 9.45. Well, I remember a number of years ago, uh, HBC was shopping, telling investors how valuable their asset base was. They have a substantial amount of prime real estate, Saks Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. You have all these flagship stores. Hudson's Bay has been around for you know, nearly 500 years. And over time they have 
really gotten some flagship real estate developments in, in many, many major cities. HBC indicated that their net asset value was as high as $45 per share. And not just that, but their new CEO recently bragged to investors only in September, so just last year, less than a year ago, that HBC's real estate alone was worth 28 bucks per share. And now you have management trying to buy it out at $9.45 per share or a two-thirds discount on that recent value pegged by the CEO. So it really seems like just really poor performance by uh, management and the board here, not recognizing any of that net asset value for public shareholders or effectively trying to steal it for pennies on the dollar from public shareholders and effectively take all those uh, profits for themselves, being the discount between or the spread between uh, the takeout price, 9.45 per share, and the resulting net asset value if they are able to monetize these real estate assets that could be worth seeing it all over the map, but you know, at least 20, 28 to $45 per share. So some material upside for management here. But in my opinion, it seems like shareholders, public shareholders really getting a raw deal. What are your thoughts on this deal? Yeah, I guess the question is where it goes from here, because right now, just looking at the current trading of HBC, is it's trading at nine dollars and around nine dollars and seventy five cents through the terms? Yes, and so that is indicating that the market believes there will be a bump in uh, in terms of the price offered. But what like when you mention what the estimated net asset value is, that's just you know a small percentage. They they can bump it very substantially and still be in a good position to realize great value for for themselves in this situation. The other interesting aspect in this deal to watch will be the involvement of land and buildings. So they are a US-based activist investor. I believe they took their stake in early 2018. So they're a pretty major HBC shareholder. Yes. And they've been pushing management to realize value for shareholders for, you know, since that involvement. Yeah, and the really, thing about land and buildings is they're a real 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 estate expert. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're they're known as experts in the space. The basis of their thesis is based on the value of real estate and spinning off those, realizing the value of those. So they haven't made any official comments, but there is some news reports that has, have indicated that they believe that the offer undervalues the company, which is not surprising. What will be interesting to watch is what action they take. Exactly. Interesting article today in the Toronto Star, and you see media starting to pick up on the fact that HBC does have tremendous unlocked value in their real estate, and you have a group of insiders really looking to capitalize on the low share price caused by effectively their own poor performance in operating the company. You've had uh, years of uh, you know back-to-back losses continuing decline in same-store sales growth, negative growth there. But the Toronto Star today put out an article and it said, quote, hold out for 15 bucks, end quote. So many in the, even the media are recognizing this uh, tremendous delta or difference between this 945 offer and this uh, the real estate value, which could be uh, at least 30 bucks or perhaps even higher than 30 bucks a share. And so I think public shareholders should recognize 
some of that value and the market's starting to catch on. I mean, like you said, it's now trading through the terms, meaning it's above the 945 cash per share offer. I think it's 970, probably close to 980. What does that tell you? Well, it tells you that the market is saying we want a better price. That wraps it up for this week's podcast, episode 18 of the Absolute Return podcast. Hope you enjoyed it. If you did, you can check out more episodes, absolutereturnpodcast.com. You guys have a good week and we'll chat with you soon. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty expressed or implied is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.